Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Thursday, September 19th, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody. In for Michael Reed. Coming up on the programme today, developments in the beef crisis, the proposed school secretary's industrial action, the latest on the delay in funding for the RD bypass, and the call for the extension of voting rights to Irish citizens living abroad. But first, the European Parliament has restated in very clear terms that it will not approve a deal with the UK without the backstop. In a resolution passed yesterday, the Parliament restated its clear priorities, including an orderly exit based on the withdrawal agreement, citizens' rights, the financial settlement and the border. And it voted for another Brexit delay if the UK requests one and meets certain conditions. The European Commission President, Jan-Claude Juncker, addressing the Parliament said the risk of a no deal at this stage is very real. And we have local MEP Maraid McGuinness on the line now from Strasbourg. Good morning Maraid McGuinness. Good morning to a sunny Strasbourg. (laughs) From a sunny Strasbourg. Well thank you for that. It it is not too bad here either. Can I start with uh, Juncker if I may? Now he said yesterday it was uh, very clear his statement. He said he's not emotionally attached to the backstop but stands by his objectives. It's as if he was saying in a kind of a coded way we'll do the backstop but we'll allow you to call it something else. Is that kind of to save face do you think? Um, well, I think that there's a desire to um, try and work with the United Kingdom, even though some of what is being said by the Prime Minister is so definitive that there isn't room for flexibility. Interesting that you pick up what John claude Juncker said. I think there were in, in some of the contributions a sense in which um, we would try and find a way uh, that the British Prime Minister can honour the, if you like, the principles behind what's in the backstop. Um, and even some were saying, we'll call it something else so that it doesn't have that um, ring of the same thing. Whether it comes to that or not, I think Jean-Claude Juncker was a little bit more sanguine. I mean, he did say that we're closer to a no deal, even in terms of timing and what might happen in the UK uh, at party conferences, which happen in a few weeks' time, and no parliament sitting. Um, And even amongst colleagues here, well, there's a sense and we voted obviously in favour of an extension because if that's requested, we should look at it. But there is also a a, a weariness setting in 
um, even for the Parliament, that we have debates where there are a number of colleagues from the UK, uh, from the Brexit party, who perhaps use the chamber, naturally enough, to echo their desire, not only to leave the European Union and to take the UK well away from it, but they would also like to destroy Europe. And I suppose for me, that's a fundamental worry, uh, that we have to be very conscious that this Brexit you know, saga, which is running longer than anyone had anticipated, can have a draining effect on the European Union itself. So we're conscious of all of those things, while, while also wanting to make sure that we avoid a hard Brexit. But obviously your colleagues were very firm in, in, in the House yesterday saying that they're, they are fully behind this, the way it was even worded. Um, you have stated, you, and in, indeed in your own statement, you said, you know, we've stated unambiguously that the European Parliament is will not approve a deal without a backstop. So it is very much, it's becoming quite entrenched. But I can hear you when you're saying there's a weariness stepping in. And I think mm-hmm. maybe some of the comments as well, people are kind of looking to pull things from it. I know Nigel Farage yesterday said the comments from Juncker were emollient, meaning and said that must mean they were close to a deal. Uh, You know, again, trying to hold out some hope. Angela Merkel said she believes they can still make an orderly exit. So people are struggling really trying to pull something from this, it would seem. Yeah, but just to come back to your comments on, on Nigel Farage, remember that the reason why he was making those comments was not that he wants a deal. He wants no deal. I mean, every time the word no deal was mentioned, that group of colleagues from the UK would roar and cheer um, with quite a significant volume. Their objective that. is not a deal. Yes, and we saw that in the reports. They really yeah. are, and it's becoming quite entrenched. Well, they were always very clear that they dislike Europe. In fact, they would say, use a stronger word, and they want the UK to leave without a deal because they have a simplistic notion that once a date comes and they've left, that you know, the UK will rise and be glorious again. And we'd all know that once the day arrives when the UK leaves, either by an orderly or disorderly Brexit, um, you know, it doesn't change a lot of the whole physical, political, uh, geographical structures that are there. But there is, as you rightly say, a weariness. What's been interesting since yesterday is the British Prime Minister contacted um, David Sassoli, the President of the Parliament, and invited him to London. And the president has accepted that invitation. In the conversation, the president would have stressed our view here as a parliament. And I think it's interesting that he's going to go to London with that resolution literally under his arm. uh, And he will talk to the British prime minister about the role of the European parliament, because two parliaments will decide whether any withdrawal agreement uh, gets implemented. One of them is the House of Commons and the other is the European Parliament. And as you say, the resolution yesterday is very clear about our position. So it will be interesting to see how our President Sassoli gets along with the British Prime Minister. Um, and, and these relationships do matter. But we are looking, you know, I mean, I suppose I said this in March and we said it again in April and now we're talking to October. I had an interesting conversation with the um, chair of the European Affairs Committee of the House of Lords last week in Brussels. And he was at pains to stress that an extension to the end of January would not be sufficient, given that between October and that date, there will be a change of government in the United Kingdom with all of the upheaval that causes. So. Uh, the, the impression I got clearly was that a longer extension was required. But again, that's up to the council. It's also up to the British prime minister to ask for it. And as you know, he said he won't ask for it, even though the law of the land in the UK says he must. 
Indeed, and and coming back to the the, the British Prime Minister and the kind of lack of detail as to whatever alternative he might be uh, suggesting. I don't know if you had a chance to read any of the analysis this morning, but in The Independent, for example, John Downing is talking about uh, the sort of incomplete proposals and how alarmingly deficient Mr Johnson's knowledge is and raising questions about the uh, the status of the the people he's even tasked with his EU negotiations in uh, altogether. And that's kind of confirming what people picked up 10 days ago when he was here in Dublin, that he just didn't seem to be very clear on what the, mm-hmm. the detail was and handing it over to advisors, etc. So it, it really is, comes down to, you know, is what Boris Johnson has been suggesting all along that he has something new up his sleeve? But actually, is that just a bottle, a bottle of smoke? Does he actually have anything new to offer? Well, I, I think I, I would take one little bit of hope out of it. Um, the Prime Minister has moved slightly towards the backstop by saying that agri-food on the island of Ireland, he can look at something there. But that's only 30% of the problem that has to be solved. But he at least has said it. So he has, if you like, um, in the process of engaging with people, come to learn why we have a backstop. It took um, Theresa May some time as well to come to the position she was in with the realisation that, you know, there's a lot of issues around Ireland and no border and the Good Friday Agreement, etc., and the All-Ireland Economy, which have to be dealt with when we leave, when the UK leaves. And the reason we've put in the uh, backstop is because they, it's the way to deal with it. Boris Johnson has moved ever so slightly. Will he move that step further and realise that he has to look at the 70% of the rest of the problem that needs to be solved? I can't comment on whether the people around him are sufficiently um, au fait with the detail, but I, I would say that from the European Union side, if, if there was any lack of information or knowledge, the EU team are, are very sharp on detail and they would have, I suppose, put them right on what works and what doesn't work and what is necessary because the whole reason for the backstop, we've, we've been through this so often, unless you find something that does the very same thing as a backstop, in other words, you need to find a, perhaps uh, another word for what's in the withdrawal agreement to allow people come to the table and accept it. But it has to do what it says on the tin. And that's the fundamental principle that the Parliament voted for yesterday and that Barnier and the Council absolutely concur with. We and have I think to make sure have, it I think, happens. I think they have um, repeatedly said that, that they need formal proposals from the UK mm. rather than this kind of vagueness and a, a, an element of waffling to come up with something tangible, isn't that the case? Yeah, I mean it's interesting what I've read is that the UK side bring papers but take them away, they're fearful of leaks. Um, John or Michel Barnier from the very outset of his negotiations, he, he made everything open and transparent. It's an easy way to do business. Um, but equally, uh, saying we're close to a deal and, and that kind of language which uh, Boris Johnson has been talking about is not the same as reaching a deal. Um, it's, it's very far away from it. And I think there's been an awful lot of very strong and emotional words about this. But when you dust it all down and look at what's on the table, we don't have sufficient proposals yet. I don't think we're likely to get anything until after the Tory party conference, which I think is in two weeks' time. And then that's very close to the European Council uh, on the 17th and very close to the end of October. So we're, we're in this bind again where time is not on our side. Um, and because of the political problems in the UK, which have not gone away, and indeed they may have escalated, it's very hard to see how anything can happen before the end of October. And if the law in the United Kingdom says you can't crash out, 
then the Prime Minister, whoever he is, has, is obliged to ask for an extension. But will he? I think people are wondering about that. Closer to home again um, this morning or yesterday, we're, we're hearing that the DUP leader Arlene Foster was speaking in Dublin at a Chamber of Commerce function last night. And again, there seemed to be a little bit of movement again. I don't know, have you had time to keep up to that? But, you know, that special arrangements for Northern Ireland after Brexit uh, could be looked at as long as they didn't affect the North's position in the UK. Again, it just seemed to yeah. be a little movement there coming in, oh. didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was quite struck by that, I think, by the tone and the words. Um, and I think that um, Arlene Foster referenced a letter that she had signed with the late now Martin McGuinness after the Brexit vote, which is worth reading. And she said that herself, because in that letter, and I can only recall, I haven't it in front of me, there was a very clear joint approach warning the then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of the dangers Brexit caused to the economy, to society, and the peace process. So I was very happy to see her recall her own words and also to acknowledge, which we all know is the case, that Northern Ireland is different and that the withdrawal agreement, whatever concerns that she would have, that it would impact on the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, that is not the case. I think there was a really determined effort to make sure that we were not doing anything to impact on that because that's a separate matter. And as we know, it's covered in the Good Friday Agreement. But I thought last night was significant and I did follow it very closely. And I hope, you know, that we'll all use this maybe, you know, movement, however minor it may be, to to get to where we need to be. And, and finally, Mairead, because we're running up against our clock here, um, just finally on the issue of movement, I'm sure the whole farming and beef issue has been close to your heart and I, you, you've followed that closely, I'm sure. Uh, tell me, indeed. It's been very alarming. Yeah, and, and just and again, I, the sense of movement this morning in, in some of the blockades been taken away. Good news. Well, important news. I've had an awful lot of farmers with cattle. Uh, they can't sell them. They're, they're traumatised by what's happening, very fearful that they wouldn't get their cattle in. Sheep farmers are also being impacted. And uh, tragically, I think there's going to be a huge cost to the farming sector from this. The blockades should have ended when the agreement was reached. But clearly those on the picket line were very determined. And maybe they felt they had nothing to lose by continuing. But I think, uh, like many others, I would welcome uh, that the factories get back to business, that relationships are rebuilt, that we look at returns to farmers. Um, and I've asked the European Commission to come up with a long term strategy. For well, hopefully we will see uh, some developments and there. there. Issues. In, and nice to talk to you all. Uh, indeed. And thank you indeed, Maid McGuinness, for joining us from Strasbourg. Text Orla now 086 1800 658. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, more on the farmers' dispute and farmers at the Dawn Meats factory in Slane confirmed last night that they've ended their protest in the long running beef dispute, and it's believed that groups protesting at other meat processing plants around the country are following suit. Dawn Meats had yesterday threatened legal proceedings against beef plan, saying that the €500,000 worth of beef held there in storage could not leave the factory because of the blockades. The potential breakthrough comes just as the situation was becoming very critical with beef disappearing off supermarket shelves and restaurants beginning to take it off the menus. And joining us now is Irish Farmers Journal Beef Editor Adam Woods. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Orla. Now, obviously, the situation at Dawn Meats had begun to get very tense. There was reports of balaclavas being worn at the factory gates. Then a legal letter issued to to uh, the the, meat, the beef plan group. So, obviously, it came to a crisis and some agreement then was reached and they began to call it off. Yeah, this has happened in a number of locations all over the past few weeks um, where we've had um, with their faces covered. Um, and, and that's, I suppose, yeah, 
beef factories have said that's you know it's it's not good behaviour outside. If the if the farmers want to protest, they can protest there with a peaceful protest. But yeah, the balaclavas maybe was a step too far. Um, and look at Don Meath issued that legal letter, um, and the farmers decided yesterday to stand down that protest. We understand that there's also ABP and Ferry Bank in Waterford have also stood down, and there's negotiations taking place in a number of locations around the country with individual farmers and factory gates and factories around prices. With base prices, the sticking point now, farmers feel, the, the protesting farmers that are at the factory gates feel that if they agree to the agreement, factories could drop the base price, so the bonuses that are being paid as part of the agreement would be negligible. Um, so that base price, so really a lot of people are calling on the factories to come out now and, and, and stand on with a good base price to restore some trust between farmers and factories. Obviously now, as you say, Beef Plan are calling on the factories to pay the farmers enough to meet their production costs uh, and they've taken away the blockade. This is really putting it up to the factories, isn't it, to kind of uh, honour the, the spirit of the agreement and to start working with the, the farmers on the price. It is. Trust is at an all-time low between uh, farmers and factories and I think we need to maybe garner some of that again and, and start talking. I know uh, there are negotiations, as I said, going on at Gates, maybe as part of a producer group organisation, uh, supplying cattle to some of the factories. And so hopefully, look, we all, we're all going to have to sit down and work together again. There's a huge backlog of cattle there. Uh, we're probably heading for 100,000 cattle now not killed in the last eight weeks. So they have to be killed again. Chills are empty. Um, supermarket shelves in some places are empty so really the supply chain has, has led to a lot of disruption and, and really there was some damage being done to the industry we know with some customers of Irish beef uh, moving to other countries including Poland uh, to source their beef so that's not good I suppose when, when customers uh, look for beef elsewhere um, they may stay with that, with that supplier and uh, we need to be seen as a as a strong we'll say trustworthy supplier of Irish beef but I'm not defending factories or, or retailers farmers uh, are well entitled to go out and protest and it's, it's a matter of passion and frustration that has them there at 3.50 a kilo they couldn't make money and they've seen no other way than to go to the gates but I think they should take this maybe as a win and um, move on um, and use that task force that the minister has said uh, he would set up and use that to maybe resolve disputes in the future if there are any disputes in the future. Now, the independent farmers at Slane said that they were ending their protest in the best interests of the beef industry, and that's obviously to be welcomed. But there were also suggestions that maybe the protest, some other factions, maybe the protest was ended because they just didn't have the bodies on the ground anymore, that people were just exhausted from all of this. Do you have any information on that? Yeah, I think in, in all locations, I suppose people are tired and weary. These farmers are businesses to run at home. As it's really hard to keep up people at the gates. But they've been very resolute um, over the last eight weeks and they've kept a presence at the gates. The problem is, I guess... It must have been incredibly hard on them. Unbelievable in terms of night and day. And as I said, these people have families at home. Some of them have jobs uh, and, some, and, and all of them are farmers at home. So very, very difficult to maintain that presence. I think it's it's quite difficult maybe for some of the farm organisations because there's a lot of different individuals. It's, it's very, very complex. Uh, there's maybe some of the protesters aren't working to a farm organisation as such. They're there on their own bat. So it's very hard maybe to, to encourage them to off the gate um, in, in some cases. And we've seen that as a result of some of the agreements. Um, some farmers said that it wasn't good enough and they weren't going away regardless of what their farm leaders say. But in today's paper, we have um, a four-page spread from each farm organisation and, and the resounding sentiment there is that farmers should maybe allow business to continue. And I'm here at the Plowing Championships this morning and over the last couple of days, that has been the message coming through from farmers on our stands. And obviously when one blockade is removed, it's, it's as if the, the log jam has kind of started to break up, isn't it? 
yeah, there's a little bit of speculation that if one or two move, then the rest of them maybe will follow suit uh, if they get uh, negotiating a base price with, with their own factory. And hopefully we'll see that uh, coming uh, in the next few days and we, we'll, we'll stay with it and we'll come back to you later if we can, um, Adam Woods, on that. Thank you for joining us today from the Irish Thanks. Farmers uh, Journal. Thank you with that update on the farm uh, story. It's a, it's, a, it's a good one we've been following. Always welcoming, as, as you know, your comments and texts. If you have anything to say on that subject or any other, please do call in to us on 086 658 That's the WhatsApp number and the text number. You can phone us on 1850 
and, and, and have that considered as part of a review. Um, so it's just the timing of what you have in front of you. That was done, um, to be honest, following a meeting um, here with elected representatives. September 28th. Yeah, so we, we tried to... Um, it was an attempt to see could, could a solution be found within the footprint. Yeah. And well, it, it was written down the roundabout of rules out to Stagger Junction. Because it was trying oh, yeah. to live with the confines yeah. of an existing land take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why it, they were ruled out. So, so it was what in you're a saying context, is you need, a new, you need more we land. We need more information. We so need to, to be, be open to the possibility of CPO. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason for, for the review now. And it, it has come clearly as a message to us. And we want to be fair to all of the people, including the people that want the scheme. Because, because you need to hear, you need to give everybody the opportunity um, to feed in. Okay, I, I, I would also say, if I may, Chairman, that I, I couldn't countenance going out to tender without being very clear about what I was going out to tender of course, for. I accept that. Um, because I, I, I mean, if you're going that. particularly now with the new fixed price yeah. contracts, yeah. you cannot ask a contractor to give you a fixed price on no. a scheme if he didn't know what he's going to be asked to build. No, I, I, so I really, no, you know. No, yeah. No, I, I'm not, Desirable I, and all as it yeah. may be, I don't yeah. think it's possible no, well, for I, us I to do that. I what you're saying in that, but yeah. nevertheless, it seems to me that it's only a small section of the road about which yeah. there are issues uh, that you could park that literally until you get a design mm. and do all that on the road and start building the damn road because the vast majority of the road is agreed. There's no issue with most of it. It's only an issue over, uh, not over, I don't mean oh, it's only an issue, but it's an issue around, around two cul-de-sacs and how you deal with them. Yeah. And there's the other alternative. Have you looked at, in terms of the other local roads in the area, that funding might be provided to alleviate issues that you spoke about, road widening, you know, about maybe a new access or a different access that would facilitate the businesses and, and the people in that area? Is that not a possibility? I'm sure it could be. Can we look at that? I'm certainly not circumscribing what should be looked at. I, I, no, no, I appreciate that, yeah. but, but could you put that on your agenda if this is what is going to happen? That the alternative is to go ahead with the road and look at all of the... Because the actually increase in costs, in construction costs, uh, is 34 million now. God knows what it will be in two years. It sounds like it's mm. going to be two years. Plus all of the legal and all the other stuff that's going to happen. If there's works that could be done to facilitate the people who have issues... Uh, and support Loud County Council getting a solution there. Might that be something that could be looked at? In theory, I, I think, I think yeah. it would be fair to say that a, a priority in the process will be to achieve the best value for money that can be achieved and to meet the, uh, what we're trying to, to, to meet the needs that mm -hmm. the scheme is trying to address. Now, if uh, a solution can be identified that allows the scheme of 2004 to proceed unchanged yeah. and another alternative be found, then I, I, I see no reason why that couldn't be pursued because, well, as you true. rightly say, inflation is very much a factor in the value-for-money sums that need to be yeah. done. So uh, it, it's, I, I see no reason why that can't be in, included. That would be significant to me, and if you deal with the, uh, and I'm not identifying any business, but if there are issues around widths of vehicles and stuff like that, I don't know what the answers are, but there has to be a solution out there that will meet those needs and at the same time allow us to go ahead. 
But I appreciate uh, you've been very helpful and I appreciate your time here. I know that uh, Chairperson uh, Dolores Moore would just like to make uh, some final comment. If that's yeah, okay. sorry. Just in relation to what Geraldine said, the community already did engage in this process and they didn't need to organise themselves because plan permission was given and they want this bypass and they're not against it. And I now have people who on the cul-de-sac side are, perhaps, are so delighted that there's no speed on the road that they're in a cul-de-sac. Now we're going to upset them people when we go back and then we're going to be back here in five years time so where does it go it's for, it's it's i'm getting very frustrated and i understand what deputy Fitzpatrick is coming so we're going to have we've people already upset we're trying to accommodate and if we can accommodate them brilliant and then we're going to upset people who are looking forward to a cul-de-sac so as a public representative I, I, the mind is boggled as to what answer i can go back to my constituency and say there you are everybody's happy nobody's ever going to be fully happy so either we build the road or we don't. And to the All right, well, I want to thank our witnesses uh, for their time here today, and I think it's been, it's been very helpful, and the uh, questions have been asked fairly and answered fairly, and I just, again, would express my deep concern about what's happening, and I would urge absolutely the only way out of this, in my view, is to find other ways of, of improving the access and points on other existing roads, but let this new road go ahead as is planned and is financed and is available immediately. Otherwise, it might never happen. Well, I could um, sense your frustration, um, Fergus O'Dowd, in the middle of that report, although you ended very um, nicely thanking everybody for their contributions clearly and coming into you there in the Transport Committee. But in the middle of it, I really felt your frustration when you said, can we not just build the damn road and sort yes, out yeah. the problems as a side <clears throat> issue? And it seems to be, you know, sort of blindingly simple there. Let the road commence. It's going to take a couple of years to build anyway. And in the meantime, the extra land could be acquired if need be or whatever needs to be done. Yeah, whatever it just needs seems to Yes, and I mean, uh, I just want to say that I'm actually, you know, I'm very disappointed at what's happening. There's lack of clarity of the decision-making process in Transport Infrastructure Ireland. It appears that one executive made the decision without referring it uh, to his chief executive or indeed to the Department of Transport and the Minister. So there's a review going ahead uh, and there's no due process in it. There's no, to me, the review must not proceed. The road must proceed. And the people of RD and Midloud, they want the road. The people that have issues are genuine. We've tried to deal with them. It hasn't worked out at this stage. So if we can address the road infrastructure of existing roads around where the motorway is going to go, put money into that. But we must build that road, and that's what my focus is on. And if that means that residents think again and withdraw their their, their views in the context of, of stop, of uh, if it means that the road will not go ahead, then I think they should withdraw their their, their, their views, their, their, their objections. And if we commit to doing everything we can to improve the side roads adjoining the, where, where they presently live and work. Now, obviously, the two cul-de-sacs we keep hearing about, Mullinstown and Towns Park, etc. Now, the residents there are very uh, uh, adamant that they don't have uh, 
they don't want to cause a delay. They didn't want their particular concerns to cause a delay in delay, the overall, yes, yeah. you know. And so even they would be on the side of letting it go ahead and working things through. Well, they have to decide that now. It is up to them to make that decision. And obviously, time is of the essence because I can tell you that TDs and county councils up and down the country are looking for this 34 million and they're looking for it today. And they will so we gladly have to act grab now. it. Of course Indeed. they will. And, and are and, you and, concerned that this budget will literally disappear? It'll go elsewhere. Well, you see, what they said yesterday was that the money will not be spent in RD if the review goes ahead. That's the first point. And that it will be spent somewhere else. So a road that isn't as high up as or as important as the RD bypass will get this money and we lose out. And so the other thing I've done is I, I've written to, to the Minister this morning. I've written to Transport Infrastructure Ireland with Chief Executive seeking meeting with both of them. Now I hope to meet the Minister if he's in the Oireachtas today. Um, and I have a motion down in the Dáil today on this as well. But time is of the essence and I believe all of us as TDs and members of the Oireachtas, I think we all agree that we must act in, in unison on this. We've brought the objections as far as they can go. We can't have them stopping the road and the residents don't want the road to stop. So let's stop the review and go for it. Build this road and build it now. We're spending, as we speak, six million has been spent on site clearance works right now. Dolores Minogue and myself were out looking at them last week. So, like, I mean, you know, let's get real. Let's get the RD economy, the local people, the every delay in everybody's car is unacceptable. Now, you've said you're really concerned about this particular executive from the TII who seems to have made this decision without any consultation. And we yes. did hear that there was a lot of consultation in the earlier part of this whole process but we know this is going on for 20 years this design dates from 2004 and the land was the original land was acquired way back then right. so it, it, the work has been done the donkey work has been done it's and yet yeah. at this point you're saying one executive can make a decision when you called them into the, the transport committee yesterday did you get any give did you get any sense that this review well, I could think be the, held up well you see the, the first thing is this is the only this is only the first time we've had them on the public uh, in, the, in the public forum I wrote to them and you would have seen the letter last week and I asked uh, what was the time delay and they couldn't tell me they didn't tell me so there's a lot of stuff going on in the background so when you bring them in the committee it's open and transparent the whole country can hear it and I think everybody in RD and Midlod and in the county of Lod want this bypass to proceed. If it means withdrawing the objections, that's what has to happen. And if we can find a way around, and I will commit in this as I'm sure everybody else will, if, if there's, you know, there will be money saved by going ahead with the bypass now rather than stopping it because it'll cost maybe 40 million at the end of next year or the year after. And if we can improve the local infrastructure, that's the way to go. If you look at what happened in Drogheda, when we closed, when we closed Lawrence's Gate, there would be queues for miles, there would be ructions, there would be riots in the streets. Never happened. Never happened. Lawrence's Gate is closed. There isn't a there is no, oh no, there is a problem with, with an intersection up from it, uh, which is causing there are safety issues there. But but there's no, there's nobody. Everybody accepts it. But so we've got to live. To we live with change. They, we have they, to live, they with, live change. with change. Indeed. Did you accept the the view of the county manager Joan Martin that you can't go out to tender while this is up in the air because you can't be specific <clears> about what you're looking for? Well, I, I understand her point of view, and she has to she has to say what she has to say. But I have to respond to her as well. In my view is 
You have all the planning permissions, everything is there. It's also subject to a potential challenge from the Green Party spoke yesterday. Now, I, I haven't read exactly what the leader said, but I wasn't encouraged by what he said about issues in relation to the bypass. Uh, so I'm just very worried if there's a change of government, uh, there could be a different policy. And this road might never be. This is our one and only chance. It's 20 years to get to this point. Let's grab it. Let's build it. Let's do it. And let's help and assist the residents in getting an alternative route. And I asked him, I implored him to, to withdraw those, those, those objections now. And in light of what you heard yesterday from the various groupings, where to next? Where to next? Well, what is the next step? Well, the you? next step, hopefully I'll have a debate in the all today. There's no guarantee that I will. I will meet the Minister, I will meet TII, I will meet my colleagues in the Oireachtas and I would hope we'll all go forward together on this. Time is of the essence. I, I would hope that certainly, I hope to be in RD, uh, certainly tomorrow afternoon. Uh, I'd be working with my colleagues like Dolores and uh, you know anybody else in the council out there. I, I, I think we need clarity uh, you know, we just need people to think long term, and if we can resolve it outside of the road, we will. But the review will kill this road, will delay it, will make it more expensive, and somebody else will be smiling all the way as their town gets their bypass, and we don't. And do you think it's unfair of the transport uh, people to put it back on the local residents in these two <coughs> cul-de-sacs and to well, make uh, yeah. out that that is the reason for this? There well, that's, that's a very fair point. Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. That is that is a very key question. Uh, and I asked specifically yesterday, I asked Transport Infrastructure, who was part of the decision? Who did they refer it to? And he said he took the decision himself. Well, then there's no process. He decides that he's going to do it. He referred it to nobody. And I don't accept that. All right, uh, Fergus O'Dowd, we will watch this one closely. We'll take your comments and texts after the news. Text Orla now, 086-1800-658. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now we're joined by Marie Kearns as usual at this time every day for our comments and texts. Marie, what have you got for us? Plenty of people in touch this morning. Have you got me there, Orla? I have indeed. You're on the mic there now. <laughs> That's all right. Yes, lots of people in touch in relation to the issues that we've been talking about this morning. Declan from Drawhada phoned in and Declan wants to know, do you think there will be a last minute deal on Brexit? Hard to see where it will come from because even though Arlene might be softening, I can't see Boris giving in because his career, if he does... Declan Fields will be absolutely finished. It'll be over. Zilch, gone. So he can't see his, ma- his career him. may well be over in any event. But we'll watch that one with, with interest. Seamus from Dundalk says that if the UK leaves the EU, it will never recover. And he also has real fears for Ireland if there is a no deal Brexit. Seamus says that many companies are not making any plans at the moment, Orla, because they put everything on hold. They are, they are dreading what is going to happen. He is dreading what is going to happen. And he's been a regular caller to the programme since we started talking about Brexit. Seamus has. And he's always maintained that a no deal would happen. And he's saying that it looks like his prediction will come true. So well, maybe um, Seamus was particularly prescient because for a long time there we were all living in hope and hoping yes. that a no deal wouldn't happen indeed. That's right. Geraldine phoned in and she says that she can't believe more preparations are not being done by the government to prepare for no deal Brexit. It's only weeks away now, Orla. Everyone is hoping from for a miracle, a miracle, but miracles rarely happen, says Geraldine. And finally, on the, the Brexit issue, uh, 
We've got a little compliment for you this morning, Orla. We'll take them. We'll take them when we can get them. Indeed. Uh, from Donna in Mornington, who says, really enjoyed the very clear and comprehensive update on Brexit between Orla and Mairead McGuinness. I don't get to listen to the show all the time, but I'll be trying to tune in more. So there you go. Well, isn't that lovely to hear? We'll always take that one, as you say, indeed. And I know you're going to have a few more comments for us uh, in a short while. So we're moving on. The latest edition of Working for Work, the flagstone publication of the Irish National Organisation of the Unemployed, has just been launched. And if you are wondering why this is necessary at a time of record levels of employment, well, there are still people struggling to find good work and who need information and employment services. And we're joined now by Breed O'Brien of the INOU. Good morning, Breed. Good morning, Orla. Now, who is this publication aimed at specifically? It's aimed at people who are unemployed or in receipt of other working age welfare payments. It's aimed at people who provide services to people who are in receipt of payments. Or, um, and that would include people working in social welfare offices, in local community organisations, in other employment services, in local development companies. So it, it goes out to a whole range of, of, of people. And indeed, um, you, you, you touch on people in, uh, in receipt of, of payments. And for example, carers might be doing that temporarily for a year or two while they have a, an elderly parent, but they're very hopeful of getting back into the, the full paid workforce, aren't they? Indeed. And the welfare to work journey, you know, people often make decisions maybe on not the full information. And we feel it's really important that people are aware of what supports are there what will actually happen when they do make the welfare to work journey. So we feel it's really important that people have a good sense of that and the publication aims to do that. And then people can always contact my colleagues in our welfare rights section to talk through their own personal circumstances because we're very conscious, you know, situations are different for different people and it's very important that people examine their own situation and so that they can make informed choices. In the news this morning, we also heard about um, the um, childcare costs again and how, how badly we fare in Ireland in that particular area. And that is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people just can't take up work, even if they want to, because the cost of it is so uh, prohibitive. What kind of information, for example, would your book now contain on that kind of a scenario for somebody? The issue of childcare, we wouldn't cover to the same extent as, as say, other organisations would. It's very much around, the, uh, we, call, we cover our welfare payments, coping with poverty, looking for work, welfare to work, income tax and social insurance, and then training and education options that people can take up. So it kind of covers that range, that range of information. We're conscious of that there's a new scheme coming down the track and that for some people there will be an improvement and that unfortunately for others they could be caught in which invariably happens when something new arises there's always somebody who just is on the wrong side of a cut off point so be conscious that for some people uh, you know that that could be a difficulty and we feel it's be important that people talk to people again just around that around how they can resolve that what is available for them and how they can address that and I think that is a big big concern for people on that welfare to work journey as you describe it because you have to do the math very closely and see mm-hmm. are you actually going to be better off and so many of the jobs, we hear about almost full employment, but so many of the jobs are part-time, they're low paid. So it must be a very hard decision for somebody to really go down that road of trying to get back into the workforce if they feel it's not really going to benefit them uh, financially and, and, you know, to, to, to find the advice on that. 
Yes, indeed. And I think it's very important that people do talk to people who can talk them through those steps. And just to say, just to, 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 to highlight for people, there is information on childcare on pages 151 to 152 that talks through people to some of the, the, the options that are there and when people are or are not eligible for things. Because particularly maybe when people are in schemes, they can be eligible for some supports and not for others. So it, there are... There, there are kind of people can start off down the road feeling they've made the correct decision and then discover that because they made that journey down the road that maybe they're no longer entitled to something or not eligible for a particular support. So it is important that people tease it out with those who are giving this information on a daily basis and can talk through their options with them. And if maybe whoever they contact isn't fully isn't fully aware of all of their options, that they can then refer them on to somebody else who who, who can support them. Because it's, it's good information, people being able to make informed choices is absolutely critical. Now, I know um, Minister Regina Doherty launched your book yesterday and she spoke very particularly of trying to support vulnerable jobs in, in, in the forthcoming budget. Did she say anything to you on that subject? No, she she we discussed a number of topics. I mean, the focus very much yesterday was of the, of the, the launching the book, and then she also highlighted you know there's a number of issues that she would like to see addressed um, in the forthcoming budget. But of course, as, as ever, they're always very careful what they do and don't say in terms of 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 uh, of, of it been formally announced by, by Pascal Donoghue. Um, so very much, she was talking about the challenges facing people who are who are unemployed conscious of the fact that there are skills gaps, that there are stresses facing people, um, that they have been running in roadshows for employers and trying to highlight schemes like YES and Jobs Plus, which are there to support and encourage employers to employ young people who are more distant from the labour market and people who are long-term unemployed. Um, and so, and the whole issue of, of, of further education training and that she'd like to address some of the anomalies in that area. Um, and Again, then she was talking about a piece of work that we have done looking at the whole issue of a quality public employment service and building on that um, and because they are developing their new pathways to work strategy. Um, so, And she noted that yeah, the world of work is changing rapidly um, and that there are challenges facing people in that regard and that the whole area of bogus self-employment, you know, that she'd like, she wants to address that, that she feels it's, it's very important to address that. Indeed, so they were we, we discussed that yeah. with her on the yeah. programme yesterday and it is it is yeah. a concern and it is something that's been addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Rita Bryan of the INOU, that's uh, good to talk to you. Can you tell us where Working for Work, the book, is available and sure. how do people access it and how much does it cost? It's, it's free and it is available uh, through the INOU and our website is inou.ie and people can will see that on the website. You can either get an electronic version of it on the website or you can request a hard copy. So that's, that information is all on our website, inou.ie. All right, Breda Bryan of the INOU, thank you for joining us today. That sounds like a very valuable resource indeed. And back to you now, Marie Kearns, with some more comments. What are we hearing at the moment? Yes, some response some response Orla to the beef dispute Mary from Navin phoned in she is absolutely horrified as to the way the farmers are being treated it's amazing she feels the way they can fix the price on alcohol but can't help the farmers to earn a decent living it's outrageous according to Mary Tom was also in touch now that the farmers are standing down their blockades he feels that the beef processors should really take on board the concerns of the farmers that they are not earning enough for the produce 
produce that they are producing. And he says, if these concerns are not addressed, we could be back to square one again and nobody in the country wants that to happen. So that's his thoughts on that. A couple on the RD bypass already. Eamon in Dunlear thinks, good, good, mo- good morning and good luck dealing with RD over the bypass. The people there seem to object to everything. Objection, objection, objection. It's a joke. They need to move with the times. If they do get the bypass, you'll probably hear the traders giving out to over loss of business, says Eamon from Dunlear. <laughs> so that's his thoughts. We also had uh, a call from um, Gronia and Gronia says that she is a resident of RD and that the traffic in the town is absolutely awful with the big lorries that are passing through every day. Uh, at peak times it can be hard to cross the road and she'll be hugely disappointed if the bypass doesn't go ahead and listening to your programme she is concerned that it could be lost altogether. Well, I think for clarity's sake, I think we need to say that most people in RD, it would appear, are very, very much in favour of it. They've been campaigning for years for it. And the one or two concerns they have, I mean, those residents have specifically said they don't want to delay the bypass. They just want a bit of clarity around how their roads are going to be treated. That's right. And they are legitimate concerns because who would want to be cut off from their town and maybe have to drive five miles through bog roads or whatever to be able to access their town. So, I mean, they are legitimate concerns um, I suppose everything has to be taken into consideration but as you said Orla can they not be addressed and allow the, the major project to Absolutely. go ahead it's going to take a so, number of years surely it could be started grab that budget while we have it and work out the concerns as we go along I mean that just seems to be the logic doesn't it and just to say Orla that we will be out in RD today uh, doing a, a Vox Pop to get reaction from local people so if you do see Helena will be out there if you see Helena on the streets do stop and give your comment give we'll her views play them out tomorrow indeed right. thanks Marie Kearns for those uh, comments and coming up next on the propo- on the programme the proposed school secretary's industrial action but first we'll take a break text Orla now 086 1800 658 Orla Carmody on LMFM now the time is 18 minutes past 10 and school secretaries throughout the country are planning industrial action for next Friday, September the 20th, following the conclusion of talks between their union, FORSA, and the Department of Education yesterday evening without any agreement. And the dispute is over the Education Department's refusal to address a two-tier pay system that leaves many secretaries earning only 12,500 a year and without any holiday pay or sick pay or any of the kind of conditions that most workers take for granted. Karen Smith is a primary school secretary in Navan for the past 14 years. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. So, Karen, you have been uh, campaigning on this issue, I know, for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing and why you're now taking this action tomorrow. I said next Friday, but it's actually tomorrow, I know. Yes, it is. It's a short work work stoppage tomorrow. Uh, The purpose of the stoppage and the action is to get the, to try and, convince the Department of Education to recognise the work that is done by secretaries in schools and the integral part that we pay in the day-to-day running of the school. And tell me, Karen, um, about these conditions. You, you've you worked for 14 years. You enjoy your job. I love my job, yeah. And yeah, So basically what happens is they, the school is provided with uh, an ancillary grant um, to pay uh, the secretary and the caretaker. Um, there are 
a number of secretaries and caretakers around the country that are actually paid directly by the department, and that's known as the 1978 scheme. Um, it's a very small proportion. I think it's only 10% of secretaries, isn't that right? That's right, that's right. So the ancillary grant then is issued uh, to the schools based on the number of children or pupils in the school, and then it's at the discretion of the board of management in the school uh, how much they will actually pay the secretary in the school. So you wouldn't possibly get the full the full grant amount. It could be shared with the cleaners in the school as well. Um, there's quite a range in pay. There's a difference in pay of, of something from 13 euros an hour up to 24 euro, euros an hour. That can be paid to secretaries. But again, that is at the discretion of the board of management. If so the hours no, would equate with basic minimum wage. So they're not breaking the law. They are at, at least paying you basic minimum wage. Because when I saw 12,500 a year, I wondered, was that full school hours, which would be below the, the minimum wage? It would depend on the pupil numbers in the school. Some schools require, uh, you know, full school days. Other other schools wouldn't. They might only have a secretary in two days a week or in for a short number of hours in the day. It's very much dependent on the size of the school and the requirements of the school. I often um, feel the, the secretary is the heart of the school in that you know every child, you bandage every knee. There's so much more a secretary does than the, the actual paperwork. Isn't that true? There's a huge variance in the job description. I mean, it just varies so much from, from school to school. There's some some school secretaries would do certain jobs that I wouldn't do and there's jobs that I would do that they may not do. Do you know, there's... But you are dealing with your ch- the children on a day-to-day basis. You're dealing with the parents coming in the door. Do you know, you are the first person that anybody will meet when they walk in through the door of the school. You're the face of the school indeed. But that variance you describe, is that part of the problem? Is there no specific job description? No, there is no job description. Um, you know, I mean, for example, certain jobs that I would do, like I would do a lot of revenue returns that would include FAT, PAYE, RCT returns to revenue. I would do wages. You might find in another school a secretary wouldn't have that as part of her job description. But in that instance, that is very much department work, isn't it? And that's the kind of work you're talking about that should be within the system. Sorry, I don't understand. When you say that, you know, that kind of technical work as such is very much work that is on the behest of the department, therefore they should be employing you. Oh, absolutely. And, and this, this, is the, this is part of the difficulty is that they're actually expecting us to do the work as civil servants, uh, but they're not recognising us as such, you know, they're not giving us the recognition that we deserve. So we're paid, as I was saying, by the ancillary grant. We get paid during school times, but during all school closures, for example, 12, I wouldn't get paid. I have to actually sign on. So you would you would sign on every summer come June? The first thing you do is sign on? That's right. When the school finishes at the end of June, I may have to stay on here for a few days. It depends. And then once I'm finished in school, I sign on for the rest of the summer. But I also have to sign on during October, Christmas, the midterm break after Christmas and Easter as well. So that seems incredible indeed. And well, what about is, sick it, pay? It kind of if anything happened to you, Karen, what about sick pay? If anything happened to you now and you had to take a week or two off, that's that's too bad, is it? Well, no, I'm lucky in St. Anne's in that they they will look after me and they've always looked after me. But you would find in another school they wouldn't, you know. So very much, there's no consistency in 
the, the, the terms and conditions for secretaries around the country. There's such a variance. Now, I know your union, uh, Forza, has been campaigning long and hard on this and trying to raise awareness generally about school secretaries, because a lot of us mightn't have been aware that this is the way you are treated in the sense that we see you there in the schools when we come and go with our children. And we just assumed you were be- you were you were uh, being treated the same as everybody else. But 94 percent of your members now have balloted in favour of the action. What kind of action will that take place? What will that be tomorrow? Well, initially, we'll have a, a short work stoppage, which is about the first hour of the school day, but that will depend on what time the school opens at. So, um, and then after that, we have our, our parameters are that we don't deal with uh, easiness, which is the Department of Education's uh, database for schools. So uh, that's where you input all the information in relation to the children. Um, you do the annual census return, which is a very important part of the, the running of the school. So all of those returns have to be made to the department by the 30th or from the 30th of September because it's the numbers on the 30th of September that will actually uh, dictate uh, funding allocation and teacher allocations for the following school year. Okay, and finally, Karen, then you've said your own school is very good to you and it's good to hear that. Um, I've heard from school secretaries that sometimes they're not allowed to use the staff room. They're treated, you know, as nearly a second class citizen within the school. Have you heard tell of that from other of your members? Oh, I have. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's some, I suppose I'm lucky here in that I have a very supportive principal. Good. But I do know of a lot of secretaries who don't have the same support that I have and can actually be quite upset by some of the incidents that can happen, you know, around the school. All right, Karen Smith, uh, Primary School Secretary in Navan, thank you for joining us and for sharing your experience with us today. And we're joined now on the line by Labour Senator Jed Nash, who I know some time ago has called a public meeting on this issue. So this is something you've been across for some time, uh, Jed Nash, is that true? That's right, Orla. I've been working with Forza Trade Union on this particular issue um, to highlight the injustices around how 90% of school sectors in Ireland are treated. And I held a public meeting in Barlow House in Drogheda uh, last February and it was rather extraordinary to see over 50 school secretaries, in many cases supported actually by INTO members and their school principals, attend that meeting. Remember, there are probably just over 100 schools in the constituency of Loudoun East Mead, so it's quite incredible to have an almost 50% turnout, 50% of schools uh, represented, articulating the case, uh, as Karen has done. Uh, this is a real injustice. Uh, there's an inequity in the system that needs to be addressed. Uh, Karen, I think, very eloquently pointed out and highlighted what those inequities are. We have um, thousands of school secretaries across the country who aren't public servants, who are doing the work of public servants, but don't get the same uh, treatment in terms of the incremental pay scales that public servants uh, have. Uh, there's no pension provision, uh, no sick pay schemes, uh, and uh, the indignity of having to sign on each summer and when school holidays occur, is just completely unacceptable. Uh, we're at this point now, Orla, uh, because a deal that um, operated and was struck actually under the aegis of uh, John O'Sullivan when she was Minister for, Minister for Justice in 2015 is running out. And that particular deal uh, ensured that um, pay increases were secured for um, non-Department of Education, if I can put it like that, school secretaries back in 2015, uh, each year uh, up to uh, the end of 2019, but the Department of Education have shown no interest whatsoever in looking again at what deal might uh, take uh, take that deal's place, might, what might follow. 
Uh, and in my view, um, the uh, reality of the situation is, and the optimum outcome uh, would be uh, that the school secretaries who are in place at the moment, those from employed by boards of management, would transition over a period of time uh, to uh, function as uh, uh, other... Um, that, that would indeed seem to make sense, but the talks with Absolutely. the Department of Education yesterday didn't really reach any conclusion. Have you any inside track on what happened at those talks? Well, uh, the outcome was very disappointing. Uh, I spoke to uh, officials of Forza uh, yesterday afternoon and they expressed their disappointment to me uh, that uh, those talks weren't fruitful. Uh, it's quite extraordinary that we're coming to the end of that 2015 to 2019 deal and the Department of Education at this point in time have shown very little interest in engaging meaningfully in what these issues involve. Uh, we really do depend on all of our schools and our community generally depends on professional school secretaries. They are administrators, accountants, managers, counsellors, mediators, social workers. And knee bandagers, as I said. Knee bandagers, absolutely. (laughs) And the first point of contact for most people when we contract the school. They are the public face uh, of our school. And finally then, Jed, what is the next step following this uh, small industrial action tomorrow? If there's no reaction, what happens then? Well, um, um, we'll we'll follow probably the normal course. I'm sure that I would be hopeful that there would be further engagement um, between the union and the Department of Education. Uh, At some point, of course, there may be an intervention by a third party, by the uh, industrial relations mechanisms of the state. Uh, We'll wait. We'll wait to see. Uh, But the point point I want to articulate is we need to respect uh, our school secretaries. They need the kind of um, security and certainty in their workplace that they're not being provided with at the moment and the reality is for a lot of uh, school board management chairs and indeed principals that I've spoken to this creates a lot of tension in schools as well Indeed, uh, school secretaries are funded by the ancillary grant it would make much more sense uh, if this was taken out of the control uh, of schools uh, and some consistency supply and the best way to do that is to ensure that our school secretaries are enabled to be public servants Indeed, indeed Jed Nash in that respect. Senator Jed Nash, indeed thank you for joining us today Respect at Work is, is a core tenet and it should extend to special needs assistance and indeed the school uh, caretakers as well uh, Coming up next on the programme the call for the extension of voting rights to Irish citizens living abroad there's a conference in Dundalk and we're going to hear about that Text Orla now, 086-1800-658. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now a conference exploring the extension of presidential voting rights to Irish citizens living outside the state will take place in Dundalk tonight at the Crown Plaza Hotel. Now the speakers, Laura Harmon, a rights activist, she'll be joined by Barrister Mark Bassett and Colin Harvey, Professor of Human Rights Law at Queen's University Belfast. And it'll be chaired by Dundalk Councillor Rory. And we're joined now by Barrister Mark Bassett to tell us all about it. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Laura. Now, Mark, um, obviously uh, there was talk some time back that there would be a referendum to take place in October on this matter, but now that's not going to happen. So you're trying to obviously keep this on the agenda in the meantime. Yes. uh, In 2013, the Constitutional Convention uh, recommended uh, an extension of the franchise for presidential uh, votes to, uh, to all Irish citizens, uh, regardless of residence. Uh, recently, the government has published a bill uh, to amend the constitution to allow for that. Indeed. Have we lost um, you there? Sorry, no, the, uh, and uh, very glad to see that the proposal is going to uh, extend to all Irish citizens. Uh, regardless of place of residence. Uh, that's going to be done 
by an amendment to Article 12 of the Constitution and then presumably uh, to the Electoral Act uh, in the years that follow. Why is this so important, do you believe, Mark Bassett? Well, the uh, the Irish Constitution speaks in in very warm terms of its citizens beyond the borders of the state. Uh, This is particularly in Article 2 and 3. And Irish citizens at the moment uh, outside of the state are excluded from the political life uh, of the nation. So the president, in, in my view, is an ideal in, institution to uh, to include us uh, in the political life of the state. Now, when you say Irish citizens outside the state, obviously somebody who emigrated from Dundalk or Navan a year ago or two years ago or five years ago still has a great connection with the country and understands and takes part in the politics and obviously checks out RTE online, etc., etc. But somebody who left 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, should they have the same rights, do you think, or or even second or third generation? Because uh, they may not just be as in in touch with uh, with the ideas here. Well, at the present time, the uh, somebody who leaves the state loses the right to vote uh, as a doll elector and as a presidential elector. Oh, and that's indeed if they left if they left last Friday, they've lost the right to vote. Yeah. No, well, you can stay on the. Uh, you're judged to be ordinarily resident uh, for a period of eighteen months afterwards. But the uh, and there's a large number of Irish citizens that are very informed about uh, the institution of the president and, and Irish political life. And they, in my view, have a contribution to make in the selection of the next president. Uh, the president is, uh, in many, it's a ceremonial head of state, but it's an ambassador for all of us. The office holder often speaks on behalf of all citizens rather than just those citizens that are resident in the state. And when you say, as, as I was asking you, you know, where, where does it extend to? Where do we draw the line in terms of what constitutes an Irish citizen if we want to bring them into this pool as such? What do you think? Well, the Irish citizenship uh, is set out in the Constitution and also in the Citizenship Act. It's uh, available to, uh, on two bases, really. The first is for those who have been born on the island of Ireland uh, provided one one parent has three years legal residence in the last four years, and Irish citizenship is also available on, on the basis of blood. It can be uh, obtained through uh, a parent's right to citizenship. So the proposal here uh, would be for anybody who qualifies as an Irish citizen and registers as an Irish citizen and then goes on to register as a presidential elector uh, would have the vote. All right, and that conference takes place tonight in the Crown Plaza Hotel in uh, Dundalk and we wish you luck with that, uh, Mark Bassett. And just to say, the legendary broadcaster John Humphreys signed off for the last time on BBC Radio 4's Breakfast News show this morning, age 76. He's presented the show since 1987, so he has been presenting even a little longer than some of our great pros here on LMFM, like Eddie Caffrey, who's been presenting the green scene for more than 30 years. Humphreys sign off this morning 
morning was as big an event as when our own late Terry Wogan signed off from his BBC Radio 2 show in 2008. John Humphrey's last interviews this morning were with former Prime Ministers Tony Blair and David Cameron and his last words referred to the changing media landscape and the impact of social media but stated the future of radio looks good and hopes the BBC remains strong in the UK. John Humphreys also presents Mastermind and retiring gives me an opportunity to acknowledge all the great pros here on LMFM who give us great service on the North East. And coming up next on the programme, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties response to the report from the Data Protection Commissioner and public, on the Public Services card. We'll take a break. Text Orla now 086 1800 658 Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now if you were with us yesterday on the programme you'll have heard Minister for Social Protection Regina Doherty explain her position regarding the report from the Data Protection Commissioner on the Public Services card. She restated her position that she and her department have rejected all the findings of the report on advice from the Attorney General which would support their view that they have a strong legal basis for their position. Now the Irish Council for Civil Liberties has campaigned against the Public Services card for some time and supports the view of the Data Protection Commissioner that the department could potentially be in breach of the law by continuing to process and store personal data. And we're joined now by Liz Farries of the Council for Civil Liberties. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Indeed. Now, I know you have many concerns around this, but what would you describe as your main concern? I think our main concern right now is the optics. There's the state's ongoing resistance to the points made by data protection experts over the year, the advocacy of rights bodies like the ICCL, and now even the direction of the independent state regulator, who is the ultimate authority on data protection matters and whom the department is compelled to follow, it's really disgraceful. It reeks of bad faith and it's a serious problem because it means the department is continuing to resist ensuring the data protection rights of millions of people in Ireland by refusing even today to reverse this illegal biometric surveillance scheme. Now, obviously, uh, the minister told us yesterday that she believes she's on good legal ground. And I'll just let you hear that clip of her speaking on that topic. And I'll come back to you then in a second, Liz. So now you're confident that the Attorney General has said uh, you have a strong legal basis, but that obviously may have to be tested. Yeah, well, as confident as we can be. But like, I think, you know, not to oversimplify this. Um, The Data Protection Commission have a view. We have a different view. The legislation that actually um, gives the powers to the Data Protection Commission's office um, leaves room for people to disagree with their findings, and that's what we're doing. Um, We don't agree with the findings, and we think we have a very strong legal basis to actually carry out the policy that we've been doing for many, many years. So indeed, Liz, when she is... Oh, boy. Yeah, that's... And, and, and clearly you disagree. There, certainly. Yeah, clearly you disagree. But obviously, um, when legal people disagree, there's only one way to go, and it's to go to court and test it. So she has her advice. I'm sure the Data Protection Commissioner has hers. So where does that leave you in the sense that you, I know, are fully on the side of where the Data Protection uh, Commissioner has come from? Uh, three points in response um, to that clip. Uh, the minister says that the department has a view and that the data protection commissioner has a view. That suggests equal footing and equal perspectives, which is certainly not the case. The data protection commissioner is the authority on data protection issues. They're the ones to whom we look for not only advice, but who issue enforcement directives that we are compelled to follow. As With respect to taking legal advice, now as someone who has litigated and offered legal advice myself, 
I can say that there are different kinds of legal advice that people can request. There's the legal advice that you can ask for, which is neutral. Um, please tell me what you think of these findings. And then there's the legal advice which you can seek, which is more litigious. Tell me how we can fight these findings. Tell me what our chances of winning are if we take certain legal steps. So I'd really be curious as to which type of legal advice the department has sought. We certainly don't know that because despite their lengthy response to the Data Protection Commissioner about this strong legal advice, they haven't disclosed the nature of the legal advice itself. And so that speaks to sort of the lack of transparency um, that the department has been sort of um, taken to task on over and over and over again with respect um, to the uh, public services card. Access to information has been very, very challenging from the get-go. Now, you've, you've put very clearly the different types of advice available. Have you actually requested from the department that they tell you what kind of advice they asked for? Well, the way we put in requests to the department is we do it through freedom of information uh, legislation. Please um, produce certain things. And we haven't been very successful in the past reaching out to the department for various info. So we have an ongoing uh, appeal at the Office of the Information Commissioner for uh, an earlier version of the report, the one that was released a year ago. And they fought a uh, release of that um, in the public interest um, even today. So it, it, is, it is difficult to sort of get access to that type of information. I also just wanted to talk about quickly that previous um, legal advice, um, the, the question of legality. And like we have to remember that um, there is legal advice um, given to the Road Safety Authority from the Attorney General. There was statements made that we can all see through FOI's um, production that the Attorney General said that the public services card did not have legal cover with respect to the Road Safety Authority. And this is apparently the same Attorney General who is now apparently saying that it's perfectly legal. So how does that make sense? One way to sort that out would actually be to see that advice. But either way, it just it's another story in a mounting body of evidence that the department has not gotten this right, that the project has been mishandled from the beginning, and then it's time to start making amends to stop the rollout of the public services. Call. And you've mentioned the freedom of information system, which, as we know, can be a bit slow and cumbersome. It, it, you don't get information instantly. It always takes a little time, doesn't it? Well, it takes a bit of time, but if someone is willing to act in good faith and produce the information to which people are legally entitled, you should get that information within a matter of weeks, according to FOI legislation. If you dig your heels in and fight production, then you're right, it can take a long time. I mean, this appeal that we have before the OIC has been um, put in place since January. So. Now, you have expressed concerns that the public services cards targets economically marginalised people. In what way? Absolutely. It's, it's what we call a digital roadblock, which creates another barrier to access essential services to which people are legally entitled. And so people um, relying on essential services from the department have to take this additional step, um, which they didn't need to take at one point. And so it certainly does disproportionately target the poor and the economically vulnerable. Now, the minister has conducted a survey or the department have, and they say that their people are overwhelmingly in favour of these cards. And I have to say that, indeed, in our texts and calls into this programme, a lot of people have said, you know, the card is fine. We're getting used to it. It's OK. So what's your view of what ordinary people are saying about using the card? I think a survey about the popularity of an illegal project is meaningless. There is the question of, do people like it? And then there is the question of, is this legal? And the leading authority in Ireland has said that it's illegal. So popularity is really irrelevant at this point. 
Further, the Data Protection Commissioner's report itself has indicated that actually there is a lot of public um, dissatisfaction with the card, and not everyone is very happy with it. I think there's 24 citations of their sources of different bodies and different groups that are very unhappy with the card. So I'm not sure about that happiness. I would just like to add a third point to that. On the foot of the uh, minister's survey, the ICCL put out a similar survey to public bodies, and we're seeing a a lack of consensus amongst the public bodies mandated to use the card. We're not seeing a lot of popularity there either. And indeed, as we saw yesterday, the passport office is the first public body that has stepped down from mandating mandating the public services card, irrespective of the department's position. And we're certainly looking forward to further public bodies following that example. And when you talk about surveys there, obviously surveys are a bit like the legal positions. There will always be a view presented and there will always be people presented. We put that to the minister yesterday and one of the points that she made was that if she felt she was, you know, personally in some doubt, she would be questioning herself, but that the fact that so many successive governments had gone along with the legislation to put this in place, that that actually gave her comfort. Just listen to this clip. ...in the legislation that was first enacted uh, in 1998 and amended in 2005, 7, 9, 11, 13 uh, and 17 by successive governments. Not, I mean, if this was just me then maybe I'd question myself and say, right, maybe, I, you know. But this has been successive governments, successive different coloured governments um, have sought to just try and make the delivery of public services more efficient for people. So as you'll hear there, Liz Farries um, of the Council of Civil Liberties, she keeps coming back to this sort of convenience uh, point that this makes things easier for people, that uh, it makes it convenient, that it makes it helpful. You don't have to fill in forms in triplicate. What's your view of that? Well, the Data Protection Commissioner has also clearly evidenced that it is not convenient for people, that it creates additional steps and additional hurdles for people to access services to which they are already entitled to. And when we talk about convenience, when we are affecting these sorts of surveillance Um, these biometric surveillance projects. We have to remember convenient for who? Convenient for the people or convenient for governments that are interested in monitoring the activities of their population in a way that is both invasive and both unnecessary. You'll remember that yesterday um, the minister said, we trust our citizens. Really, is that the case? Because I would say creating a population-wide surveillance mechanism based on sensationalist tabloid-style claims of fraud, certainly doesn't demonstrate that the department trusts the people of Ireland. So why make that claim? And why do you say it's a surveillance mechanism? That kind of implies CCTV cameras rather than than anything else. Just, Just clarify that a little for me. If you use facial recognition technology to create a population wide database of the people in Ireland, that is a very strong very strong example of surveillance, which for the so-called administrative ease, which the department claims but has not proven, is highly invasive and it's certainly not necessary. And yet there are reports that the chip and pin element has never really been used, that it's really just the more basic information that's being used at this stage. Is that that correct? Yeah, well, and this takes you back to that um, comment earlier, this idea that this project, um, that this idea that the minister presents that this project has been a unified singular coherent plan since 1988. That certainly hasn't been the case. It's backed or people refer to very sprawling, very confusing legislation to support it. The purposes and the mechanisms for the project have changed over the years. And at this stage, it's almost like 
it's a project that's so wrong-headed and so confused that it, it sort of needs to find self-justification, which is why it continues to expand outwards and outwards. Now, the final little clip I just want to, you to hear uh, from the Minister is basically saying that card issuing is going to go on as normal while we wait and see is there going to be um, any further legal position as such. Well, uh, unless and until we see the enforcement notice, we're going to carry on on the basis of the legislation that was enacted in 1998. So um, the department, in effect, will continue to operate the public services card and the safe absolutely. to identity authentication process. All of that will go ahead as normally. Absolutely. But again, to point out that finding one of the eight findings states that the commission states that the department is entirely legal in its operation um, of carrying out our services in the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection um, and has a legal basis to do so. So anybody that's out there that has a PSE card that uses it for the purposes of employment affairs, any of our schemes, uh, any of your passports or your SUSE grants can absolutely continue to do so. Anybody that uses it for free travel, it is as authentic as it was yesterday. So there, Liz Farries, you're hearing that. Um, you've talked of sort of mission creep, that it might have started out as one thing, but it's gone to another. And now the minister is saying it's going to just go right ahead until we see does that enforcement happen or not. What did you mean exactly by mission creep? Mission creep is just sort of expanding to an ever widening series of requirements for an ever widening series of services offered by various governments, government bodies. Yeah. Again, sort of extending beyond that original purpose envisioned decades ago. And I just wanted to say, like, you you wanted to ask about the department continuing to push this out um, even now, even now, despite the DPC's findings. And I think from the ICCL's perspective, that's the most brazen issue at all. Like, this isn't a surprise. The DPC's conclusions aren't out of nowhere. They received a virtually identical um uh, report a year ago. They've been hearing for years from data protection experts. They've been hearing, hearing for years and have, have had an ongoing dialogue with the data protection commissioner well before they even opened this formal audit in 2017. And nonetheless, they persisted. They persisted to push out this card despite huge questions of legality and they're persisting to push it out now even though there are clear statements of illegality. That's an incredibly bad faith move and it doesn't reflect well on the department. And prior to an enforcement notice uh, taking place or prior to that next step, what do you consider on the legality of the current situation right now as we speak? The minister said yesterday that people are still looking for the cards, that there's been no slowdown in it, that people are not obviously taking on board a lot of this. Our position is that the card is illegal and so the department is acting either in bad faith or illegally by continuing to insist on the requirement of the card. And again, we're very happy to see um, the passport office step away from that requirement despite the department's position. Do you believe other departments will do the same? I think it really, I think there needed to be a leader, someone, one public agency needed to take that step and now that's happened and I'm very hopeful that other public bodies will do so as well. And will you be continuing to ask for the uh, information held on file for the three million people who currently have the cards? Are you going to continue to press that that information should be destroyed? Deleting the population-wide database? Absolutely. Um, and, And your concerns around that database that is currently held right now, how do you feel it could be misused or what are your your concerns around it? It's very difficult to build protective walls around data. There are risks of breach, 
um, not just by employees, but by malicious actors. We've seen examples all over the world about how um, massive databases have been breached and data has been stolen and sold on the black market. It's just too risky. And in this situation, for this so-called purpose of administrative convenience, it's just not necessary. And now we have clear statements that it's illegal. So it's time to delete the database and it's time to stop the ongoing rollout of this illegal scheme. All right, Liz Farries of the Council for Civil Liberties. Thank you for joining us today. We will be hearing more about that, no doubt, in the time to come. That's where we have to leave it for today on the programme. My thanks to Eamon Marie and all the team here for uh, doing the back work as always. And we'll be back with you on the programme tomorrow morning, all going well at 9.15. Thank you for joining us today and look forward to talking to you again tomorrow. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.